like you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Thanks. So I just looked up while they were singing, Go Tell on the Mountain was uh, written by an African-American named John Wesley Work Jr., and I'm pretty sure he wanted people to yell, Go, that loud. Um, The joy to tell the good news. Go! Tell it on the mountain. Let me pray, and then I'm going to invite us to hear the text in front of us this morning from the book of Hebrews. Father, I would ask that this season you would draw near to us. The epistle of James makes the promise that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Lord, I know that there's people home right now suffering from illness and some with COVID and other illnesses. Some are uh, concerned about a recent uptick in COVID. And Lord, there's different trials. We go through different toils each season. Uh, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we draw near. Would you draw near to us? Minister to our souls, our spirits, bring healing to bodies, bring prodigals back home, join your people, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Just to give some honor to God's word, I'm going to just invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Hear now God's word for God's people. It says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you to be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed entered that rest just as God has said, so I declared on my oath, In my anger they shall never enter my rest, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare for the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You may be seated. 
In the middle of the pandemic last year, uh, there was a psychotherapist by the name of Maura Davis. And this is what she said. She said, people have found this last stretch the toughest of the whole lot. They're tired, worried, exhausted. They've run out of steam. I have heard from people, I really can't take much more of this. If you have kind of remained in friendship and fellowship with people in the community, in your church, in your workplaces, I'm guessing most weeks, if not every month, you're hearing someone just say, I am tired. Bone. Tired. Uh, it's not just caused by COVID, this issue of kind of a restless soul. It's, it's much deeper. Uh, humanity, like we have a rest problem. We crave rest, but we never seem to experience rest. Uh, one, one writer I, I came across again last week noted saying this, no time-saving device has ever saved us time. And so even though we have all this technology, we have all these things out there, there's just a restlessness. Our souls are still astir. And so that's why you, you actually can look out into culture, you can see like spirituality is on the rise. Psychotherapy is as popular as ever. And so I think there's something in the human spirit that says, maybe this counselor can help me find quiet. Maybe this yoga instructor can stretch me into peace. These crystals promise serenity. These prayers promote tranquility. And still there's this deep rest that just seems so elusive. We want to possess it, but we don't seem to achieve it. And so the Bible passage in front of us is, is, speaks often of rest. And I want you to know that when I went into studying this passage a couple of weeks ago, I was ridiculously confused. I'm maybe a little bit farther ahead than I was then. Every biblical scholar and commentary I picked up said, this is a tough passage. I'm going to give you a kind of a main idea, and then I'll try my best to walk through this passage, because I think we want rest. We want to know where to where it's going to come from, when we're going to experience it. Here's my main message. It's this. If we take seriously God's offer of rest, we'll strive diligently to hold on to faith. If we take seriously this offer of rest, we'll strive diligently to hold on to faith. So I'm going to break up this into just three parts, walk through the text to my best of my ability, and then hopefully go home encouraged. Three ideas are this, let's, we want to take seriously God's offer, then we're going to look at God's rest is offered today, and then the last section talks about striving diligently or making every effort to enter God's rest. So this passage begins in verse 1, it says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So that expression here in the New International Version um, translation, it says, let us be careful. If you have uh, like a King James Version, it says, let us fear, lest we missed out. Uh, it's an invitation to sober 
thinking. Um, but when I, as we're studying this passage, I want you to kind of uh, consider ourselves, because this is the way we really are, um, consider ourselves patients in a sick world. We're, we're patients in a sick world. And, and the sickness that's being addressed is this restlessness. We're not well. And so then the question remains, uh, a couple of questions remains, like to whom or to what will we seek diagnosis? To whom or what will we seek, try to find treatment? And so when you come to this text, it says, hey, we have to be careful lest we miss out. There's bad doctors of soul that will give you bad treatment plans. And so we want to come sobered, hopeful, and we want to take seriously God's offer, right? So Jesus in the scriptures is described, he's the great physician. He's come to save sin-sick souls and restless souls. And you get an idea of the healing that's offered in verse 3. Verse 3 says, now we who have believed enter into that rest, just as God has said. And so there's this contrast. There are some who can enter into the rest, but there are some who didn't. It talks about a previous generation, and we talked about this last week, that previous generation that didn't enter God's rest, where the Israelite people who had been brought out of Egypt promised that you're going to enter, experience a measure of rest in the promised land. You're going to get, enter Canaan. You'll have rest from your enemies. You'll have a home. The chains of slavery will be gone. But that generation didn't enter into that rest. So we need to just get a good definition of rest. If you notice again back in verse 1, it talks about uh, the, the rest of God. It's God's rest. This isn't the kind of rest you get from a lazy boy rec recliner or when you go on a carnival cruise or even a Disney cruise. This isn't the sort of rest that's being offered. It's being described as God's rest. And I want to define rest from this passage. So there's two kind of two verse sections that kind of define rest. Verses 3 and 4, verses 9 and 10. So first in verses 3 and 4, we read about a state of rest that God has been in for a very long time. The end of verse 3 says, His works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day with these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. So one aspect of rest is the resting of works. It's the stopping of works. It's the cessation of labor. It's the completion of our tasks. And I think all of us has probably tasted that, right? When you find, you know, finished that day where you've been out in the yard and you mowed and you trimmed and that wonderful smell of grasses in the air, and you sit down on your back porch, and there's just kind of a, ah. Uh, like, that's a taste of the kind of rest that, that God offers. Then you re jump down to verses 9 and 10, and you get the idea that this rest has been, since the end of creation, is now being offered to humanity. Verse 9 says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. So this term, Sabbath rest, it's a single Greek word. And it actually refers to the celebration of the Sabbath day. Like, it's a festival day. 
It's a party day. It's a holiday. It means playing. It means delight. It means joy. So if you put verses 3 and 4 and verses 9 and 10 together, this is my definition of rest. Rest is joining God in the seventh-day Sabbath where work ceases and celebration begins. That's rest. You share in the cessation of work and you celebrate. Now, if you steep yourself in Jewish culture, you know that even yet today, the Jewish people have a, have a pretty firm understanding of the taking of one day in seven to rest from works and to celebrate. Those of you who know your Bibles well will know that when God created uh, the earth, he created it in six days and he rested on the seventh. And when it talks about the creation, every day was good, 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 good. The sixth day they said very good, but the seventh day was made holy. It's the first holy thing in the Bible. This day is holy. What God is doing, himself resting from works, Inviting other people to rest from their works and then to celebrate is a holy thing in this present world that actually points to another world. I appreciate there's a little book on Sabbath by a Jewish rabbi named Abraham Heschel, and it's called The Sabbath. And two of the juiciest quotes from him are this. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth, on the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in our soul. Then later he writes, there is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. And so what Heschel does, he does this nice job of showing that rest is both a place and a state. It's a place where God dwells, and yet it's, a, a, it's, a, it's also a state that he shares with his people. You get a taste of it when you take a Sabbath day. But one of the ideas we're going to see here in Hebrews 4, you won't experience it fully until the end. The day itself, the Sabbath day, is a sign pointing forward to the end of time when, where God's people are with him. So again, a definition. Rest is joining God in the seventh day Sabbath where work cease and celebration begins. And that sounds kind of super spiritual. But what does it look like practically? I want to start by explaining what, it, what its opposite is. What's the opposite of the kind of rest held out in the Bible? The opposite of rest is personal achievement. It's expressed in the attitudes, I know better it's up to me, I'll figure it out, or in the words of people from the South, get her done. In contrast, Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. This is the good news held out. But we reject it and say, I'll figure it out myself. So just as we, before we transition, this idea of do we take this offer of rest seriously? Are we careful? Is there a sense of fear of missing out? Do we want to cease from our labors and celebrate? Or do we want to stay in a spirit of restlessness? 
take seriously God's offer. But the rest of this passage is going to develop the idea that this isn't automatic. This isn't applied universally. Humans have a role to play. Point number two is the idea that God's rest is offered today. Now, if you're like me, let's just do some kind of soul work or kind of heart reflections. Have you ever felt like rest is just around the corner? And yet, yet somehow it seems like impossibly out of reach. So we think, if I just get through this tough season at work, then I'll be at rest. Or if I just get the living room painted, then I'll rest. If I get these grades, if I get that degree, then finally rest. If I get so much money in my Roth IRA or my 401k, then finally I'll be able to rest. I think it actually happens in the church with Christians. This was a rough week, but this week, this week, if I read my Bible every day and pray for certain, I'll be at rest. So there's always this, if X, then Y. If I just do this one thing that isn't quite done, then I'll be at rest. Just, it's just one more thing. What I want you to think about, meditate on, one of the key words under point number two and evident in the text is the word offered. God's rest is offered today. Right, so he's holding out this promise of rest. But it's a promise that one day there will be total cessation of earthly works for every human person. And a total experience of celebration before the living God. And we were made for that day. But what the first century Hebrew people here, the original audience, and us need to hear, that day isn't here yet. Not here yet. On this side of heaven, or on this side of Jesus' return, we will actually never experience total rest. The offer is held out today. The full experience of that sort of rest is placed in the future. I'm going to read verses 4 uh, through 10 again slowly. Listen to where he, the, the writer is wrestling with Old Testament scripture and then kind of the New Testament community. He says, for somewhere, by the way, I think he knew where. And he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And then again, in the passage above, he says, now he's quoting Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day. So now he's, this certain day is called today. And this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And it says, but for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. And here's this key two verses again. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. 
So God is offering this Sabbath rest, and it's held out as something that is coming, and then one day we'll enter into it. We'll enter the permanent rest of God. So if you have read ahead in the book, you read Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the people of faith. They never received what they hoped for. They were always longing for a better country. But they didn't taste it in that world. One day, we will enter into the permanent rest of God. Sometimes it's called the ultimate promised land, the heavenly Zion, the new heavens and new earth. Rest is similar to the theological idea of glorification. Like Rest is the end goal of the Christian life. And you're invited to enter. But note well, to enter, this rest is to fulfill God's desires for us now. The wilderness generation, this compares to the people who die in the wilderness, they didn't enter because they quit believing. They quit striving. They quit trusting God. Many of you know the story. Right? They're just sitting outside the promised land. It's theirs for the taking. And people come back and say, man, those giants are big. We're going to quit following God. We're going to quit trusting his promises because those guys are big. And then they start reflecting back. You know, life was so good in Egypt. I want to go back and rest there. Do you remember that? They, like, they had pomegranates there and leeks and all these other vegetables. Like, what was interesting is they wanted the lazy boy kind of rest that they envisioned back in Egypt. They didn't want the rest that was in the promised land. But to, get the, to enter the promised land, they had to obey. They had to press on. They had to actually do, go to battle. Hold on. And then he mentions, even when Joshua entered the promised land, so what? One generation passed away, a new generation grew up. Joshua brought them actually into Canaan, and the point of this text is they still didn't experience the sort of rest that we're talking about. Yes, they had a land, and yes, they had, it was divided up, and yes, they would have kings, but there still wasn't rest then. Well, how do we know? Because finally when there was the great King David, he said, we're still not at rest. It's coming. And so there's, it just keeps going out. The offer is always held out. In every generation, it's held out. But you have to hold on. Even after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, the offer of rest is now is held out. It's still going out. Even the most godly Christian hasn't fully experienced the rest God has promised. And if any preacher tells you that they have it, if you follow their three easy steps, they're lying to you. Our journey of faith is going to be hard, but it's worth it. The rest is coming. Let me just give a quick word of application before we move to the end. I do think some people think they have sinned too much, that God is no longer offering me this hope. They think they've gone too far from God. That offer is for those other people. The offer is held out today to anyone to believe and obey, to trust the Lord. That he has greater gifts, greater promises for those who will hold on to him. And you can come back no matter how far you think that you have gone. And if Jesus' ministry is any indication, it's probably the people who think they're good enough and religious enough that are the farthest away right now. 
the ones who feel small, broken, sinful, unwanted, unloved, you are the most ready to understand God loves you with an everlasting love, and he has sent his son for you. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come back to Jesus. If you're still breathing, you still have time, come to your senses, turn back to God. Many of us need to wake up from our suburban pleasure dreams. Realize there is no hope there. The offer is still available today. So we've looked at this. We want to take seriously God's offer. God's rest is offered today. And then the author gives us the application here at the end. Strive diligently to enter God's rest. I know that seems paradoxical, but let's look at what the text says. Verse 11. It says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Some translations will use the word strive after to enter this rest. So striving and resting are ironical, paradoxical companions. Um, So what does God want? Well, first let's talk about just a common, I think, misconception. I think some people look at Christianity and they and they say they they throw out some argument like, "Those guys believe in Jesus because they just want to take the easy road. They need a crutch." uh, but I was with some people this church, and I thought uh, a woman wisely said to me this week, belief is hard. That is, faith in God is not easy. Um, faith is a life of striving diligently, but it's a different kind of striving than the world strives. So let's talk about that. What does the world strive after? It strives after money and reputation pleasure, maybe a pain-free life. The, the world strives after the desires of the flesh. The world strives on behalf of the self. And they do with all of the energy they can muster to get those things. Christians, however, wake up from like a self-drunken stupor and we say, life really isn't found in the abundance of my possessions. We wake up one day and we say, living for my name is silly. And we begin to see Jesus Christ and we see the life that he lived, the the redemptive death he gave for his people, his triumphant resurrection and say, but living for his fame, that's worth it. We cry out because we understand the words of scripture. We say, you know, if I gain the whole world, I forfeit my soul. And so now I choose delightedly, surprisingly, to take up my cross daily and die. The world strives and Christians strive, but it's a different kind of striving. One strives to kill these selfish desires, this I want to experience the lazy boy life. I want to kill that so I can live for God and experience a rest with him at the end of this long road of obedience. And another strives for immediate, quick rest that isn't restful at all. 
appreciate Isaiah 64, 4. Kind of wrestling, what does striving look like? So everybody starts, what does striving look like as a Christian? Isaiah 64, 4 says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now we're starting to get into the different way that Christians strive. You know how Christians strive? We strive by trusting God. We wait on him. This is what I believe was the failure of the people who died in the wilderness. They saw giants and said, that's hard, let's leave. That was their logic, right? That's hard, let's leave. But if they would have believed Isaiah 64, 4, they would have said, those are giants, God is bigger, let's pray. And then let's fight. You have giants in your life. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's, maybe some of you guys are, are there's some foreboding because you know that Christmas is hard with your family. Some of you are fearful of some economic decisions you have to make. They seem like giants. Look at the giants and say, God is bigger. Let's wait on the Lord. And then let's go. Let's strive to believe that God is big and God is good. Let's strive to do what he has asked us, even when it seems impossible. Belief is hard, but it's worth it. This is why Paul, when he described the life of faith, he uses the analogy of a race. And this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture growing up, because I was an athlete, and this stuck with me. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Right? Everybody's striving, but only one gets the prize. And he actually says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And then he says, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Notice the terms. Men, ladies too. Run! Fight! Strike a blow to the selfish flesh. These are the type of words that capture what it means to strive diligently. Now we have to still wrestle with that, but I think we should be. We're pushing back saying that doesn't seem so restful. Didn't Jesus promise rest for our souls? Let's look at that text before we go. Some of you are familiar with Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. It's called the great invitation by people. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what's Jesus offering, promising? Well, first, it's the, the, one of the key repeated words is this term, yoke. Y-O-K-E. This has nothing to do with eggs. A yoke. What's a yoke? A yoke is a tool right, that binds oxen together to work. In the days of Jesus, 
to take on someone's yoke was to accept their instructions and way of life. So there was something called the yoke of the Pharisees, right? Maybe the modern-day equivalent to a Pharisee would be Tony Robbins or some other motivational speaker. If you take these teachings on your life, you will be successful. If you do these three or four spiritual practices today, there will be a level of serendipity and peace that you have never imagined. All you have to do is pay $19.95 every month. But what Jesus says is he says, I want you to take on my yoke. I want, I want, to, I want you to be bound to me. Now it is to obey him. It, it's to work. Right? Rest in Jesus is not laziness. What it is, it's a new way to live. Connected to the king. Jesus really went after the Pharisees and he says, oh, they, they put all these heavy burdens on them, but they don't even use a finger to help them up. Jesus is not like that. You put on the, you, you, you're bound to Jesus, you put on his yoke, he strengthens you every single day. He lifts you up to obey. He lifts you to walk you into the promised land. He lifts you to fight the giants. I want, as a Christian, I reject all the other yokes that are being offered to me. I strive diligently to walk with Jesus under his yoke, and there is this amazing rest. Now, I want to go back to Hebrews 4 as we close. Notice the primary tool given to diligently strive. Verse 12. Here's the primary tool for the word of God is alive, and it is active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even a dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if we're going to strive with Jesus, if we're going to pursue this offer of rest, we need to let the word of God do a profound work in our lives every single day. And when we do, do you look what happens? The word pierces our hearts. It rips off the masks. It blows away our defenses. It kills our inner lawyer. It exposes the lies we believe and the sins that we love. The word, word will then reveal how weak, sinful, and needy we truly are. We're just laid bare. We're ripped open. Some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene where there's this dragon, this boy is trapped in this dragon body, and it has to, the, the lion has to rip through to get off all the layers of deceit and self-deception and pride. And in there, after being ripped to pieces, now the boy can live. I found this online explanation of Hebrews 4, and it's helpful. I quote, it says, Though we desist in our self-efforts to earn salvation, and the promised eternal rest, we also make every effort to enter that rest by choosing to depend solely on God, to trust him implicitly, to yield totally to the promises of God through the free grace of his salvation. Here's the contrast. The world is looking for rest with a pillow. That's where I'm gonna find rest, some sort of pillow, whether it's the pillow of religion or a literal pillow, or achieving some economic status, 
then I'll rest. This text says it's perspective. To see the world as God wants you to see it through his word. And then to walk in step with Jesus Christ. In short, the Bible, will, what it will do, it will bring us to Jesus. We realize that we have no hope, joy, rest, or peace apart for him. The word's going to show me that all other paths lead to death. All other ambitions end up in hell. The word says, quit striving after what the world can offer. Rather, diligently strive to enter the rest that only Jesus can provide. That's what we need. We don't need a pillow. We need perspective. A few last words then. So for the Christians who are tired, bone tired, I think one of the Hebrews 4, these guys are, they're tired and they were tempted to walk out. I just want to encourage you, 21st century Christians, don't walk out. Press on. The giants in front of you are not bigger than the God who is with you. The same God who saved you from sin can help you walk through cancer. The God who brought you peace in high school can lead you through college. As elsewhere it says in Scripture, his word never fails. To those who who is a non-Christian, who this is new to you, some of this... Is new to you. I mean, you're you're on a road and you're driving. There there are signs along the way in your life where God says, "Here's an exit. It's a path to rest. Take it." I don't know how many times God will give you one of those exits. Right today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You may get another exit. You may not. And so there's this invitation today. You can repent of sin and find life in Jesus. Today, you can find someone worth living for. One scholar put it this way, God's rest is available and its loss is a true possibility. And so, friends, let's take a serious look at the offer. Let's praise the God who makes the offer and then let's diligently strive together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, I'm just reminded today that the promised land is held out. The hope of heaven is still mine in Christ. And with my brothers and sisters, we want to press on. And we want to remember that the only way we're going to press on is through your strength and through your power, through your enabling, through your grace. And so give us confidence to press on. Uh, but also, Lord, uh, give us strength and energy to labor faithfully. Thank you that rest is out there. It's offered again. Pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts to the offer, but we would trust the God who has proven his love, his faithfulness, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen.